before we begin, a word from our sponsors. Oh, we don't have any. And there's no R either, as this is very much a solo effort. So, if you would like to support my endeavours, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Toby where these podcasts are available much earlier and have supplemental show notes and other exclusive content. Hello there, I'm Toby Haydock, here to remind you that fear makes companions of all of us. Welcome to Too Much Information, which aims to tell you the who, the what, and the when of Doctor Who, a television programme about running into, and then away from, trouble. A lot. You might be just about to watch or have only just watched the episode in question and are eager to learn everything about it. Or maybe you know it backwards and would like to consolidate what you already know. But whatever. If Doctor Who is your thing, then hopefully there's something for you here. I'm going to go through the series in order, outlining the basics and throwing the spotlight onto the unexplored. And I'm doing it with each and every episode. That's episode, not story episode of Doctor Who. There will be facts and observations and names and dates and stuff you didn't know you cared about. But maybe when this is all over, you will. And this time we're taking a trip into the series' third episode, in which the adventuring is underway and the series begins to learn what it can and should, and can't and shouldn't, be doing. So join me, Toby Haydock, as I give you the who, what, when of Doctor Who, The Forest of Fear. Or, he's an old-fashioned hero, but also someone who wants to kill people with a stone. First broadcast on the 7th of December 1963, at a quarter past five. It starred William Hartnell as Doctor Who, William Russell as Ian Chesterton, Jacqueline Hill as Barbara Wright, and Carol Ann Ford as Susan Foreman with guest stars Jeremy Young as Cal and Derek Newark as Czar. It was written by Anthony Coburn, produced by Verity Lambert and directed by Waris Hussain. The TARDIS crew work to free Ian from his bonds. He is the strongest of them after all, and this week they're working out who is the best at what as their uneasy dynamic continues to form. The old mother, who dislikes the strangers because they represent progress and she much prefers being cold and without fire as it gives her something to grumble about, enters the cave by a side entrance cunningly disguised by a bunch of sticks and tells them to get lost and take the secret of fire with them. Zar and her, having forced the old woman to tell them what has happened, follow the travellers through the forest but Zara is attacked by a wild animal, which leaves him wounded. Barbara insists that they go back to help him, and Susan agrees, with the men reluctantly bringing up the rear, and the doctor underlining his reluctance to assist by picking up Zara's knife in order to finish him off, rather than bring him to the TARDIS for antibiotics, as Susan has suggested. Ian stops him, but in the cave the old mother isn't so lucky, because after she tells all to Cal, he raises his stone knife giving her one more thing to grumble about before he renders her unable to do any more grumbling about anything ever again. The travellers, with Zara on a stretcher, make their way towards the clearing where the TARDIS has landed 
but unfortunately Cal has caught up with them, and a few Neanderthal ne'er-do-wells stand between the crew and the ship. When? June 1963. Anthony Coburn has started work on this story, which includes a synopsis and then an episode breakdown. And there is where the action in episode 3 starts to formulate. In the four-page story breakdown, not split into episodes, part 3 takes up only two paragraphs, the main difference between this and what is ultimately broadcast is that when Tsar is attacked, the Doctor, rather than opting to kill him, merely urges his colleagues to press on with their journey, and it is Chesterton who insists they go back in case they can help. In the final version, it is the women who lead those rescue efforts. When escaping through the forest, Susan is to see a mark made on a tree by Chesterton from their journey to the tribe's cave, this retracing of steps is absent from the final version. Now, in the scene breakdown, a longer document, split into scenes and episodes, Ian insists on going back, frightening the attacking beast off with his torch. There is a small antiseptic kit in the TARDIS where they determine to take Tsar and her in order to help the stricken man. Whilst Susan bathes Tsar's face and Barbara... <clears throat> tears her slip into strips to make bandages, they learn of the oncoming cold and realise why the tribe are so keen to find fire. In this scene breakdown, as in the story breakdown, her and Tsar follow the travellers despite, and this is emphasised, being terrified of the night, another element that also features strongly in the breakdown for episode 2 but is less blatant in the finished version. Both of these breakdowns have the old mother not being killed by Cal, and she makes it alive into episode 4. 26th of June. Episode 3 now exists, in the form of a first draft by Anthony Coburn. Producer Verity Lambert and script editor David Whittaker remain unconvinced by the caveman setting and Coburn's treatment of it, and Lambert actually sounds out another writer, who is also a producer, Terence Dudley, but he turns her down. And anyway, they all have a sneaking suspicion that it's too late to pull the plug on the cavemen, which is pretty much the only vaguely suitable story in any shape at all. With the draft scripts coming in, Lambert outlines the series' production structure to Pauline mansfield Clark at the BBC casting department as attention is turned to securing the regulars after a session by outgoing producer Rex Tucker involving potential Susans and Lola McGovern's, as Barbara is still called at that point, doesn't produce anyone who floats Lambert and director Warris Hussain's boats. 28th of June. Episode 3 and its predecessors have now been studied by Dick Levin, head of design, and his design manager, James Bould. This department has been very resistant to the series, but having seen the first three scripts, they are somewhat mollified and agree that they can meet this atypical show's servicing requirements. 12th of July. David Whittaker's revised story document underlines how the characters are to interact with history, 
and some of this clearly influences and lives on in the ultimate manifestation of the caveman story. Advice must not be proffered to Nelson on his battle tactics when approaching the Nile, nor Bon Mose put into the mouth of Oscar Wilde. They are four people plunged into alien surroundings, armed with only their courage and cleverness. That said, the idea of using modern drugs intended to help the injured Tsar is still permissible, or perhaps it simply slips through the net. 10th of September. The main cast, William Hartnell, William Russell, Jacqueline Hill and Carol Ann Ford, each receive a copy of the script for episode 3, alongside a revised version of the first episode. 18th of September. The first elements of what will become the Forest of Fear are committed to tape, as Norman Kay and his ensemble record the music for the whole story between 6pm and 10pm at the Camden Theatre. The orchestra costs £82, one shilling and threepence. 9th of October 1963. Filming takes place for the small amount of footage required in episode 3, The Forest of Fear, which consists of the short shots of the TARDIS on the heath and some cavemen emerging from cover to cut the travellers' access to their sanctuary off at the end of the episode. 28th of October. The cast gather at the Drill Hall, Uxbridge Road, Hammersmith for the week's rehearsal of The Forest of Fear. 31st of October. As rehearsals continue, some advanced recording is done for the scene in which Tsar is attacked by the animal, possibly just the sound of Derek Newark screaming. 1st of November. A studio day for the Forest of Fear, which takes place at Lime Grove Studio D. The recording of this episode is to be Eileen Way's last work on the serial. William Hartnell once claimed that he had had a bet with a dubious cast member of this story that the series would run and run. Years later, Way claimed that this was her, but although Hartnell technically won the bet, they never worked together again, and so he was unable to claim his winnings. A press release issued today gives the story title as 100,000 BC, but it's fair to say that title doesn't stick until many years later, and even then, it doesn't stick for everyone. 14th of November. Verity Lambert is informed that a design department budget allocation on this episode only came to £418, contributing to a very welcome underspend on this episode, as it had been expected to be £500. 5th of December. Anticipation for the third instalment is clearly high in the offices of television today. Reviewer Marjorie Norris has enjoyed the first two instalments and says that If the series keeps up the high standard of the first two episodes, it will capture a much wider audience. It certainly captured me. 7th of December. The Daily Mirror chats to Verity Lambert, who tells them how she secured the series' theme music, explaining that she walked into the radiophonic workshop saying I want a new sound. Way out and catchy. And so department head Desmond Briscoe recommended Ron Grainer, who, three weeks later, presented them with something on paper. But, the mirror explains, the workshop rendered it without using a single musician or musical instrument. They did it all by electronics. The geniuses putting it together used, according to the piece, three basic pieces of electronic equipment, an oscillator, a white noise generator, and another machine similar to an electric guitar. 
Each device produces electric currents which, put on a loudspeaker, become sounds. Such sounds are then tuned to the correct pitch and the result is a pure note. In turn, these notes had to be treated. For one thing, the wobbly effect is produced by something called a wobbleator, which does just that, wobbles the tone. The white noise generator produces a hissing sound, like steam from the kettle. We had to see the introductory film, then fit the sounds to what was being shown on the screen, explains noise expert Briscoe. It was the passing cloud effect on the screen that inspired the white noise or hissing sound. The melodic sound you hear comes from the electronic oscillator and the rhythm sound is provided by the machine like an electric guitar. After that, the noises had to be put on tape and tape machines, filters and echo chambers were used, all controlled by a master mixing desk. Pretty complicated, says Briscoe, but it worked. Although the workshop has produced odd noises and sound effects in the past, this is the first time electronics have been used to produce a recognisable tune that is way out and catchy. Nothing quite like this as a title tune has been heard before on TV. It is a noise with rhythm and melody which continually pulsates in a weird, fluid and uncanny way, although the actual theme lasts only one minute and 44 seconds. I'm delighted with it, says Lambert. It's just what I had in mind. It is becoming the most talked-about theme, according to the article by Clifford Davis, and Doctor Who itself is scheduled to run indefinitely. The Forest of Fear is broadcast tonight. At 23 minutes 38 seconds, it is the shortest of the Cavemen episodes, but it is still longer, by just under half a minute, than the series' opening instalment. With 6.9 million viewers at a chart position of 61st, it is the highest-rated and highest-charting episode of them all as far as the first story is concerned, but with an audience appreciation figure of 56, it continues the story's gradual decline in this particular area, but it gets marginally worse next week. 11th of December. Having been a bit controversial at last week's meeting of senior BBC management, there was division about its suitability for children, Doctor Who this week is a good story well handled, but it is still felt to be unsuitably placed at 5.15pm. Donald Bavistock resolves that rather than tone down the storytelling to fit the slot, he will move the show to later on in the evening. Sidney Newman is not in the country, and so not there to defend his delinquent offspring. 13th of December. As mentioned in our previous instalment, Sidney Newman returns from the USA and watches The Forest of Fear today alongside The Cave of Skulls, which makes him late for the programme planning meeting where Bavistock's intention to move the show to a later slot is being discussed. When Newman gets there, however, he clearly makes the contrary case strongly enough. Doctor Who, he says, is in no way a horror film that would worry children. Going forward, he wants to make minor adjustments to the series, even though he thinks the episode's wonderful, and he won't consider shifting it in the schedule. The What? This episode is originally titled The Cave of Skulls, but episode two ends up claiming that, and so an alliterative alternative is conceived in its place. The opening scene is reenacted this week, rather than using last week's recorded climax. The Doctor is in close-up for his opening line, and he also refers to the skulls as a plural. He was singular last week. 
Ian, too, says that they have been split wide open. He didn't use the word wide last time. The close-up is of a solo skull standing upright with a hole in the top, slightly more posed and singular than last week's. The old mother holding the stone knife in order for the title and writer credit to play over them means that poor old Eileen Way has to keep her hand in position for approximately forever. Initially, her face was to have the title of episode two placed over it as the camera panned over to her for the first cave scene of that episode, and for episode four, the title was at one point intended to come over a shot of her dead old mother's foot, which basically meant that at a certain point, every permissible part of her body might have been used as a title caption backdrop to every episode of the caveman story before plans were changed. David Whittaker's rewrites of Coburn's scripts change the dynamics between the regular crew. The Doctor's attitude to the school-teaching interlopers was to have softened pretty quickly under Coburn, but Whittaker maintains the froideur for longer in places. That said, there is also a slight distance between the Doctor and Ian in Coburn's version, which has vanished by screen time, with the old man referring to the teacher more formally as Mr Chesterton throughout the paper version. The cave scenes are important for establishing the crew dynamic. I'm desperately sorry, says the Doctor, showing some of the vulnerability necessary to break through his crabby exterior. But Ian also rightly berates him. Don't just lie there criticising us, he says. Do something. Ian and Barbara, however, get some unspoken bonding in the script, with Ian admiring the way Barbara is trying to crush her fear. In the original script, these scenes showed Ian gradually gaining respect for the Doctor and realising the weight of responsibility. The scene between her and Tsar, in which the woman explains to her husband-to-be about the old mother going into the cave, had no dialogue in the script and was given extra heft by the actors and director Warris Hussain during rehearsals. The dialogue is useful but not essential, but perhaps the episode needed a few more minutes, as without this scene it would definitely have underrun somewhat. It's also helpful, of course, as a psychological insight into the cave characters. The crew were initially to escape from the Cave of Skulls via a hole in the roof, but this is altered to a sort of side entrance in order to be more practical in the studio, if less helpful for storytelling. It's not much of a prison if it has a great big hole in the side that's just covered up by twigs. There is a recording break after Tsar and her leave the cave to follow the TARDIS crew, so after the old mother falls unconscious and before we see the travellers in the forest. Talking of the forest... Designer Barry Newbury has researched fossilised leaves as a template for some of the foliage he has created for the forest. The trees do not need to be full size, of course, so stop at 14 feet, ample enough to be viewed whilst not wasting materials that will be out of sight, and any more height won't have been practical in a studio anyway. Among the trees Newbury uses, one is a fibreglass tree from another production, but because that production has paid for it, but it has not yet been shown, he is not allowed to feature it too prominently. The script, describing the fact that the old man is not used to running, says that the Doctor is in distress. Doctor in distress. Yeah, we'll come to that much later. The Doctor's line to Ian, I'm not so young, you know, was added by Hartnell in rehearsals. In the script, the Doctor and Ian 
speak viciously to each other, but quietly, so they don't disturb the girls. They are less worried about terrifying the gentle females in the final version, so that's some kind of progress. Susan's line about not coming round a place but going across it is the other way round in the script, and presumably changed to fit in better with the staging. As mentioned earlier, poor old Barbara has to scream at quite a lot this week, including at the carcass of an animal she stumbles into as the travellers flee across the forest. Hill wasn't over the moon about this scene. As scripted, she was supposed to get her hands covered in its blood as she held them out to break her fall. Conscious of the watching children, perhaps, this is less explicit and her hands remain free from manky dead animal bits in the final version, but she still screams about it a lot anyway. In earlier versions, it's not just a random animal that attacks Tsar in the forest, but an old enemy, and in some early drafts it is specified to be a panther. A recording break occurs after Susan breaks away from the Doctor in order to join Ian and Barbara going to the aid of Tsar, and Tsar is the reason for the break. Time is needed to apply blood and makeup to the wounded Derek Newick after the animal attack. In the script, we were to see the old woman being killed by Cal, but this idea was eliminated before recording. In the original script, Susan and her go to fetch water, leaving the Doctor free to consider killing Tsar, but the more logical move of having the stricken caveman being the one needing hydration was used, which means, ultimately, only her needs to exit. Also in the original, Horg goes with Cal in pursuit of Tsar and his daughter, and this remains so until very late in the day, when someone observant points out that at the beginning of the next episode, Horg is waiting in the cave for them all to return. So this is altered just in time. At the end of the episode, Jeremy Young has to remain still, staring into the camera for quite a long time as the next episode caption appears and the credits roll. Eileen Way was lucky, it was only her hand. The Who Howard Lang Howard Lang, playing Horg, is the only member of this landmark first guest cast never to return to Doctor Who. Born in London as Donald Yarrington, Lang was already a veteran actor by this stage. He had begun his life in entertainment as a stuntman before the war. He actually worked on screen during the conflict, often playing naval types in background roles, appropriately for someone whose wartime service was in the Royal Navy as a gunnery lieutenant. In fact, his first acting job was in the film The Middle Watch in 1940, playing a sailor, and he had to phone the production company and explain that he was going to have to leave the picture as he'd been called up to serve in real life. He is uncredited in a number of 40s and 50s films, and he made his TV debut in the BBC play Arrow to the Heart, notable for being the first collaboration between Quatermass writer and producer Nigel Neal and Rudolf Cartier. You couldn't make a sea-based film without Howard Lang at one point. He's in them all, including classics like Dunkirk and A Night to Remember, but he did genre movies too, such as Gorgo, The Curse of the Werewolf, and Frankenstein Created Woman. He is also the galley master, of course, in Ben-Hur. 
On stage, he notably played the lead in the very first professional production of Harold Pinter's first play, The Room, directed by Pinter himself at the Hampstead Theatre Club in 1960. And Doctor Who was sandwiched between Lang's two West End appearances, Write Me a Murder at the Lyric in 1962 and Monique at the Savoy in 1964. He made most impact on TV and was already a small-screen veteran by the time he encountered the TARDIS crew, especially to viewers of Sir Francis Drake, a seafaring show, what do you know, in which he was a regular. He guested in many a TV series in the 60s and 70s, but really hit his stride latterly, with a long stint as crusty sea dog, of course, Captain Baines in The Aneedian Line from 1971 to 1980. His initial attraction to that project was because of the sea setting, rather than the role, which he initially turned down due to its brevity in the original episode. Ultimately, though, it became a substantial, supporting and regular part, and the Aneedian line was a huge hit all over the world. During the last chunk of his life and career, Lang really prospered, as Winston Churchill in the epic miniseries The Winds of War in 1983, a role he reprised in saucy comic strip adaptation Jane the following year, and he was in The Last Days of Pompeii and Barry Letts' version of The Pickwick Papers in 1985, before bowing out of the profession the following year, appropriately playing a captain in a sea-based production, the film The Pirates. When he died, aged 78 on the 11th of December 1989, the Daily Mirror and various local newspapers reported it, linking him most with his famous Aneedin-Line role. Appropriate, really, for Lang was very much a man of the sea. As well as his wartime service, he also crossed the Atlantic as a crew member on America's Cup yachts and kept his own yacht, which he moored at Chichester Harbour. At the height of his TV stardom, he would sail his 16-foot fibreglass vessel, the Sundancer, across to the Isle of Wight whenever he wasn't working, and he also sailed in Sir Francis Chichester's boat, the Gypsy Moth 5. He was also a public advocate of the Jubilee Sailing Trust charity, collecting donations on their behalf. Lang was a keen sportsman and a lifelong supporter of Queen's Park Rangers football team. He travelled the world. He once bought a Greyhound ticket on impulse and went round America. He canoed down the Danube. He heard Hitler give a speech at a rally, was an authority on pirates and enjoyed jazz and opera. His brother was rugby player Peter Yarrington, who was capped five times for England and who served as chairman on the United Kingdom Sports Council and was knighted in 1992. Jeremy Young remembers Howard Lang, with whom he was reunited on the Aneedian line, as a bluff man with an air of gentility. Eileen Way At 52, Eileen Way was pretty used to playing old crones. This striking character actress cornered the market in them for several decades. Way, who would return to Doctor Who twice, as the older, of course, of the two women in the wood in Daleks Invasion Earth 2150 AD, and as Madame Corella in The Creature from the Pit, had a fabulous career. She was born in New Malden, Surrey, in 1911, and she attended RADA as a teen, graduating in 1930. She was with what became the Royal Shakespeare Company in the early 1930s, but married the prominent psychiatrist Felix Warden-Brown in 1934 
and with young children, she decided she could not do repertory theatre, and so concentrated on raising her family, travelling to the US with her husband, but still managed to make her television debut as early as possible, really, in 1939. She also broadcast alongside comedian Will Hay on the radio in the 1940s and kept herself busy. Her characterful face, perfect for beady-eyed matriarchs, found her playing a grandmother on TV as early as 1955 in Music and Macaroni, and hers was a regular face on the small screen throughout that decade. In 1958, she got the memorable film role of Kitala in The Vikings opposite Kirk Douglas. Her striking physiognomy was also versatile, those huge melancholy eyes which could strike terror with a suitable injection of invective were perfect for soulful Mediterranean parts, or those which required wisdom and melancholy. Though she portrayed a lot of suffering on screen, she was, according to friends, a practical and vibrant woman, keenly intelligent, politically engaged, a kind hostess and an active conversationalist. Left of centre, politically, she marched on peace demonstrations and espoused egalitarian causes. She and her husband were fervent contributors to the Aldermaston anti-nuclear protests of the 50s and 60s, presumably wielding a placard saying something along the lines of Fire will kill us all in the end. On stage, she was the first actress to play Shakespeare's Audrey barefoot on the English stage in As You Like It at Stratford in 1932, and she appeared with Laurence Olivier in A Streetcar Named Desire at the Aldwych Theatre in 1949 as the Mexican woman, of course. Felix, her husband, died in 1972, but she rolled up her sleeves and continued to engage in causes and to work her socks off on TV and in film. She was impassively humorless in Hancock's The Reunion Party, 1960, an unpleasant aunt, Cora Bassett, in The Newcomers, a 30-episode run in 1966, was an aged great-aunt, aged and aunts, just two of her specialities, in Poldark in 1977. She had many other specialities, actually. Jewish, for example, in, say, War and Remembrance, 1989, and Greek, too, in Spectre Morse, 1991. And she deployed those effectively and often, and probably holds the record for the number of characters played with the word old in their name or description. She was still doing good big screen work as late as 1989, Queen of Hearts, an Italian grandmother this time, and her TV roles were of a decent size, Grandmother Brangwyn in The Rainbow, 1989, and Alice Harkness in Russell T. Davis's Century Falls, before her last hurrah, shining as Mrs. Pebbles in the much-loved Sean Hughes comedy series, Sean Show, 1992-93. She was apparently very amused to be invited to a Doctor Who convention in Birmingham, and gamely went in part so she could get Patrick Troughton's autograph for her grandson. She could be quite reserved, apparently, until she got to know you, but was generous and kind to her friends. And she died, aged 82, at home, in June 1994, surrounded by her children and grandchildren, a grand old mother to the end. Derek Newark Derek Newark's father, George, worked on the racetrack, taking bets, although he had at one point been a chorus boy in musicals, so there was a little something in the blood. 
The family moved to London, then Essex, and young Derek, known as Jack to his family, started performing as an amateur, winning a singing prize aged just 10 and being dubbed the boy with the golden voice. He did well at school, excelling at sports, but his father was a drinker and a gambler and the family poor, so Newark enrolled in the Merchant Navy as a deckhand to earn some money and to see the city of his dreams, New York. He started his semi-professional life as a stand-up comedian, in the early days briefly collaborating with the writer Johnny Spate, who went on to TV fame and fortune. Called up for national service in 1953, he joined the Coldstream Guards, giving his civilian occupation on his join-up papers as Variety Artiste. He was an exemplary soldier and rose through the ranks, eventually becoming a lieutenant in the Royal Army Service Corps. He served in Malaya and took part in special operations, dangerous ones that are covered by the Official Secrets Act, but certainly he engaged in mortal combat, up close and personal, and some of the occurrences in the jungle would haunt him for the rest of his life and could account for some of the offstage behaviour soon to be detailed here. The secret of his fire indeed. He also took part in military entertainment and he got his own show on Singapore radio, performing as Jackie Styles, so that the top brass wouldn't know that one of their officers was a star turn. Cockney comedian Styles laughs and smiles with Jackie Styles, performed at various military functions across Singapore before now acting Captain Newark was discharged in 1958 and returned married to England. He could have prospered as a soldier, but did not want a career, as he put it, as a professional killer. Weary of gagsmithry and of Jackie Styles, he decided to become a serious actor and enrolled at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in 1959. He was an excellent student who worked hard to conquer his occasional flat vowels and his speech impediment, a weak R, which occasionally surfaced. He was deemed to have a particular gift for comedy and was a good mimic. At Rada, he was a contemporary of Carolyn Pertwee, niece of John, and he became good friends with the actor Roger Jerome, who would later appear in Doctor Who in the Macra Terror. Roger remembers that Derek loved stage combat, but came to Rada with an inferiority complex about being an East Londoner with an accent to match. They were all part of the Rada Players' Company, who did a season at the Little Theatre Bangor just before their final term. Newark won many good reviews for his roles, which included Alfred Doolittle in Pygmalion, and eventually graduated with a diploma and the fencing prize, which he shared with Roger Jerome for a sequence they had devised together. He maintained his relationship with Rada. Having been a genuine soldier, they called upon him as military advisor for productions with an army setting. His first professional job was a small part in a play, The Tinker, co-written by future Doctor Who scribe Robert Sloman for which Newark also understudied actor Edward Judd as the lead. After a tip-off from Judd, who wanted out of the play because of a clashing film role, Derek took over at short notice when the star collapsed on stage and ultimately dropped out of the role. Newark did himself no disservice stepping into the breach and ensuring that the show went on, and the engagement secured him the services of a good agent. From there, he enjoyed a successful season at the Belgrade Theatre Coventry, playing good parts. Mick in Pinter's The Caretaker, P 
perfect for his hard edges and menacing presence, and Dawn in The Seagull, which more suited his dry-witted, more detached and aloof side. And he rubbed shoulders with burgeoning talent such as Ian McKellen and Mark Eden. Although unlike Derek, those two didn't make it to the TV version of a stage success that they had had together, an uncompromising military drama called End of Conflict, which saw Derek featured on the cover of the TV Times in July 1963. In the 60s, he balanced well-paid TV work. He was a regular in 1965's Front Page Story and did guest spots in The Avengers and Callan and The Champions with his love for theatre. And he managed to squeeze in the odd film too, often playing soldiers, frequently German ones, in the likes of The Blue Max and Where Eagles Dare. He wasn't averse to a tussle and was a genuine hard man who once squared up to Oliver Reed on a film set and was involved in a rowdy night on the tiles with genuine gangster and actor John Binden, who recognised a tough nut when he saw one. By the 1970s, he fell in with the Royal Court Theatre, a burgeoning movement of good work done by often untrained working-class talent. Though Newark gave the impression that he was of this school, he was actually of a politically conservative disposition and was a grafter with a military man's respect for discipline. In the company of such left-wing agitprop types, he was something of a fish out of water, and he drank like one in order to prosper socially, and his alcohol consumption began to become an issue at around this time. He also encountered two great talents who would become key collaborators across his career, Scottish director Bill Bryden and playwright Keith Dewhurst, and when he joined the National Theatre in 1975, he didn't look back, though a stint as a regular in Barlow at Large that year meant that TV viewers would remember his face as a familiar one. He spent most of the next decade or so as part of a talented and rambunctious ensemble of actors known as the Cottesloe Gang, or Bryden's Beasts, or the Rugby Team. They included Trevor Ray, who, like Newark, worked on season seven of Doctor Who, though in Ray's case as an uncredited assistant script editor. Jack Shepard, Tony Haygarth, Robert Stevens, Jim Carter, Brian Glover, and Mark McManus. A later addition was the actor Kevin McNally, who remembers... Of course, one of the problems was was the drinking, of course, was uh, very excessive. He used to have a little, um, uh, a little briefcase that opened up and it was a bar inside it. And she would have <laughs> <laughs> the dressing table with a bottle of scotch, a bottle of gin, some mixers and a couple of glasses, you know. Um, having said that, of course, the theatre of the late 70s, early 80s had a sort of a relationship to alcohol that's unimaginable. No, really. Newark was the life and soul, convivial and high-spirited, but often a cruel and bullying drunk, so much so that when he took an instant dislike to an actor visiting backstage, a little-known fellow called Sylvester McCoy, and started intimidating him, Jim Carter, later to star in Downton Abbey, knocked Newark to the floor and told him to back off the future Doctor Who, leaving the older man to exit the green room and to silently lick his wounds. This bunch of talented hooligans worked as hard as they played, though, and the work they produced was of a very high standard, and so they were tolerated, even if sometimes viewed via the sideways glance or raised eyebrow. The Cottesloe Theatre at that time, the Cottesloe Company, Bill Brighton's company, was a, was a company built upon alcohol. I remember we were, 
we were described um, in one review as, um, I, you know, I've, I've gone to see, I think it might have been the, the, the Mysteries or something, to see Bill Bryden's wonderfully broad-bottomed actors, you know, that was, <laughs> we, were, we, we, were, we were the sort of least camp um, sort of a company in the country. That was, that was a brand that was, that was definitely um, encouraged uh, by Bill and all of the leading actors. Um, they, they were a hard-drinking bunch of blokes, but, um, uh, you know, the, the, these guys were, were moving into their 40s when I was in my 20s, and they were, they were not able to, to, um, uh, to, to continue the good work with the alcohol. And, and in fact, many of them, um, started to uh, moderate uh, their intake. Um, for some reason, Derek wasn't able to do that. And so you could sort of see him heading for the abyss, really. A famous anecdote about Newark from this time revolves around Simon Callow, new to the National Theatre Company, being shown around by a fellow actor. Welcome to the Green Room Bar, he was told. See that hole over there in the carpet? That's where Derek Newark falls. He had great success in Bedroom Farce, directed by Alan Akebourne himself. Michael Goff and Joan Hickson were also in the ensemble, but Newark got his share of great plaudits, and the show fulfilled an ambition of his with a long run on Broadway, where he enjoyed himself as an Englishman abroad. Among the admirers of this performance was Harold Pinter, who recalled... The depth of his paralysed, pain disbelief was excruciatingly funny, a masterful demonstration of the essential gravity of farce. Pinter would seek Newark out at the National Bar, and Newark played the lead in his play, The Hot House, and at the read-through, Pinter... Never laughed so much in my life as I did when his outraged exasperation with the crassness of those around him assumed monumental proportions. When The Hot House was made for television, directed by Pinter, Newark was present and correct, reprising his role as Root in 1982. At around this time, he was announced as a cast member of the film Gandhi, director Richard Attenborough fulfilling a promise to work with him again after Newark's turn in Oh What a Lovely War a decade or so earlier, but ended up pricing himself out and so missing being in one of the most successful films ever this was not to be his last professional blunder, alas. For now, though, his greatest stage role beckoned, as the atrophying salesman Shelley Levine in the powerhouse National Theatre production of Glengarry Glen Ross, which won the 1984 Olivier Award for Play of the Year. There was a feeling that Newark was unlucky to miss out on getting a nomination for Actor of the Year. His co-star Jack Shepard actually won for playing the lead role Richard Romer, which was subsequently taken over by Kevin McNally. It was a good performance. The, the wonderful thing about um, that production is that it was done without any form of sentimentality whatsoever. It was a very clean, clear, fast-paced performance. And he was, you know, he was, he was not a sort of a failing, weak guy. He was a blustering bully um, who just wasn't getting the figures anymore and just makes a terrible mistake. So um, I think it was, that people really liked the performance. I don't think you can maintain a performance, you know, just through bluster and an alcohol, you know. So it definitely played a part in, in, a, in, a, in quite, a, quite a sort of a, 
checkered set of performances towards the end of the run. Um, I remember him being so drunk uh, that he fell off his uh, chair and I had to help him back into it. But unfortunately, this kept happening. And, and on one night, I just said to him, I'm not helping you up tonight, Joey. And he just had to do this last speech on his back on the floor. And I thought, you know, somebody's got to uh, call him to some account about, you know, being so drunk while doing the play, you know. Cast as Winston Churchill in the war drama Soldiers, Newark pulled out of the production before its planned London opening, unable to remember his lines on a number of occasions during its pre-West End warm-up stints at Theatre Cluid and Buxton Opera House, causing performances to be pulled. The official reason given was nervous exhaustion, but his withdrawal cost the producers £70,000 and the profession doesn't forget. It was to be his last proper theatre role. He was 57. Newark has further Doctor Who connections. Having played Greg Sutton brilliantly in Inferno, he stayed friends with John Pertwee, who expressed an interest in being attached to a TV series, which ultimately never happened, that Newark was developing with his writer brother Peter. Newark also propped up the bar with Tom Baker on occasion, though he wasn't as much of a fan of Baker's favoured drinking den, The Coach and Horses, as others were, so he wasn't one of its most regular frequenters. Newark, like his unearthly child co-stars Eileen Way and Howard Lang, also appeared in War and Remembrance, giving yet another German officer. He's always worth looking out for, producing real tears on cue as Abraham in Bryden's extraordinary, epic, promenade production of The Mysteries, Brian Glover is God, that's all you need to know, which was recorded for television thanks to its critically acclaimed theatre run. And how about doing more character-oriented playing than he's often identified with as the pudgy, bespectacled copper in Budgie? And what about a Sean Connery's right-hand man in Sidney Lumet's The Offence? Or flexing his comic muscles a couple of times as the restless spooner in Rising Damp? and as a reliable character player capable of menace or lightness in equal measure in almost every television series you'd care to name. But time and alcohol took their toll, even though the magic was still there as he eked out what was left of his talent with decent guest parts in The Bill. The penultimate one of these found him as a pensioner who uses an old army blade to lop off the fingers of a burglar. The character is a former soldier of Malaya, and so his backstory tied in neatly with Newark's own. And he delivers the character's witty parting shot at the end of the episode with perfectly judged dryness. Unfortunately, though a further engagement with the bill proved financially welcome, it also brought him into the proximity of the actor Kevin Lloyd, and the two became drinking buddies, which did neither man any favours. But these were brief flickers. He was broke and he struggled for work. A neck injury from a fall took him out of action for a whole year and was making his way through a couple of bottles of vodka a day and relying on the actor's benevolent fund to help to keep him solvent. Eventually, he succumbed to the alcohol completely, lapsing into a drink-induced coma and passing away aged just 65 in 1998. Renowned writer Keith Dewhurst wrote of Newark that when first night came and the atmosphere was against you, there was one person who never lost his bottle. England's actor, 
the soldier who fought to the last man. I would put him first down on every team sheet. Not a great wasted star, but a hero nonetheless. Alan Aikborn once said that Derek's spotlight entry should read, Derek Newark, every agent should have one. Whilst, in response to Jack Lemmon's nevertheless excellent performance as Shelley Levine in the brilliant film of Glengarry Glen Ross, a colleague of Bill Bryden said to him, Who would have guessed that Derek Newark was a better actor than Jack Lemmon? Brian Cox called him a great talent, and Harold Pinter wrote that he would treasure his memory whilst conceding that, and using a phrase favoured by Newark to describe others, but also his own behaviour, on nights he'd rather have forgotten, Newark was often bang out of order, which is, appropriately, the title of the book written by his brother Peter, subtitled The Rise and Fall of Actor Derek Newark, that tells the tale of this dependable but dangerous, reliable but unpredictable, professional but hard-living, and very, very fine actor. His ashes were scattered in the Thames outside the National Theatre, the location of many of his risings and fallings. References Before I go, I need to acknowledge a debt to those doughty and diligent researchers whose work I've picked over and collated and cross-referenced to come up with much of the above. Doctor Who, The Complete History, edited by John Ainsworth, contains so much that is useful for timelines and cross-reference and is the embodiment of fastidious research and clear presentation. They are based on Andrew Pixley's rigorously wrought archives features and also feature the work of Richard Atkinson, Johnny Morris and Alistair McGowan. The David Howe, Mark Stammers and Stephen James Walker books, the 60s, 70s and 80s and each of their Doctor handbooks deserve much praise for shaping our basic understanding of the developmental story of the entire show behind the scenes. And Jeremy Bentham's Doctor Who The Early Years is a vital and valuable record in both words and glorious pictures. The TARDIS wiki page and Shannon Patrick Sullivan's Complete History of Time Travel have also been very, very valuable for quick, handy reference. I walk in the shadows of giants, who doubtless spent much of their childhood as baby giants in their local library flicking through old copies of the Radio Times. I would also like to acknowledge the production notes on the BBC DVD of the story and Peter Newark's book, Bang Out of Order, which tells the tale of his brother in some detail. I'd also like to thank Roger Jerome for his memories of Derek. That's it for now. Well, it's another exciting instalment, The Forest of Fear, given extra luster by the testy relationship between the TARDIS crew. The Doctor is at turns contrite or crabby, and at one point considers murder. Ian is very much the moral centre and capable hero. Barbara is probably the least well-served of the regulars at this point, greeting many a problem with apoplectic hysterics, and yet it is she who insists on going back to help Tsar, so even now she displays some of the characteristics that will soon qualify her to stake a claim to the title of Best Companion Ever. This episode still feels like uncharted, unfamiliar turf, though. Whilst plot-wise, there's nothing to it. It's a perilous journey to the machine which, two weeks ago, was a strange portal to infinity, but now seems like home, like sanctuary. The cave people are suitably alien and strange, and the guest cast rise to the challenge of what is a big ask, whilst director Hussein 
shoots the camera through things and over things and keeps the action rattling along and the atmosphere fizzing with uncertainty and danger. Oh, and the Doctor would never kill anyone. Not because of any conflicting morality, but because his subterfuge needs serious work. The tension between Hartnell and Russell is great, and the crew have never looked grubbier at a period in the show when the very environment is as dangerous as any plot twist or human machinations. Fear, indeed, makes companions of us all. Good job we all went through that forest then. Brought us all together. Doctor Who, The Forest of Fear, also featured Eileen Way as the old mother, Alethea Charlton as her, and Howard Lang as Hawk. Special effects were by the visual effects department of the BBC. The title music was by Ron Grainer with the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. The music was by Norman Kay. The story editor was David Whitaker, And the designer was Barry Newbury. Coming next, it's muddy and it's cold, and the TARDIS crew have what the cave people need, so it's a case of earth, wind, and finally fire, as Ian becomes the second regular, because Susan was, after all, the unearthly child, to have an episode named after him, because he is the fire maker. That's next time on Doctor Who. Too much information. Which is written and narrated by me, Toby Haydock. With thanks this episode to Richard Bignall, David Brunt, Peter Crocker, Richard Molesworth, and Jeremy Young. And special thanks to Roger Jerome and Kevin McNally. Technical assistance was by Russell Parker. The series consultant is Richard Bignall. Additional voices were provided by Sherry Lee Houston. And the music for this podcast is specially composed by Wayne Shepherd. Next episode, The Fire Maker, or Doctor Doctor, can't you see I'm burning, burning? There is a supplemental podcast, one per story, as opposed to per episode, Far Too Much Information, which is exclusive to Patreons. It's ultra geeky, so it needn't be considered essential information. And hey, I have to hold something back as I get used to this patron podcast, self-funding, self-producing, self-promoting ah mixture that we have to get up to these days. And look, this stuff does take quite a lot of time to put together, so fair's fair. Currently, there are far too much information episodes on the prehistory of Doctor Who, as well as the pilot and the first episode. And there will be one that covers episodes two, three and four of the first story whatever you'd like to call it, and there'll be discussion of that as well. This instalment's featured patrons, without whom I wouldn't be able to do any of this whatsoever, are Ruben Herfindahl, Rob Leonard, Jenny at Blue Box 99, Paul Cook, John Deere, Chris Dunford-Kelk, Siobhan Galichon, Ian Key, Joe Llewellyn, Darren Mackay, Stephen Moffat, not that one, Richard Straw, Andrew, Luke Atkins, Peter Adamson, Will Brooks, Rick Byatt, Paul Carrington, Andy Case, John Curley, Rob Dawson, Ian Gillespie, Lisa Gledhill, James Gould, Lisa C. Greco, Andrew Jordan, Robert Jewell, Guy Lambert, David Matthewman, Stuart Mitchell, 
Nathan Moore, Melvin Pena, John Rivers, Keith Say, Len Stewart, Nick Temple, Apollo C. Vermouth, Gary Wales, Adam Westwood, Rich Wiggins, Michael Williams and Stephen White. I'm grateful to them and to all of those who didn't get a mention this time but will be name-checked on another occasion. Please consider supporting these podcasts, which do take approximately forever to put together and are done single-handedly, by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Toby or by making a one-off donation at ko-fi.com forward slash Toby And if you can review and rate positively at all those pesky outlets, then that will help. And when it's worked and everybody knows about them and loves them, I'll stop having to ask. But we're not there yet. Do join my mailing list at www.tobyhadoke.com and don't forget to subscribe to the official Toby Haydoke YouTube channel. During the lockdown, I will be doing my weekly comedy club excess malarkey which has been running for 24 years every tuesday and will do so on twitch tv forward slash excess malarkey 8 p.m tuesday nights me with special guests the leading comedians in the country doing their best for you under lockdown for no charge although we do encourage donations that's excess malarkey on twitch tv every tuesday 8 p.m